0: This is the Capitalism and Freedom, the 21st Century podcast where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Today, I'm joined by Morris Kleiner, who is the AFL-CIO Chair in Labor Policy at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. Morris is a labor economist and the world's leading authority on occupational licensing, which he studied for decades as an economist. Welcome, Morris.
1: Well, thank you and delighted to be with you.
0: I want to start by talking about your origin story. And You were born in a displaced persons camp in Germany after World War II. Both your parents were Holocaust survivors. Tell me about your whole story of growing up and your family's story and and how you came to America. You almost came to Canada. Tell us a little bit more about your origin story. Uh,
1: Glad glad to. It was uh, certainly uh, my origin started at a very low level. Uh, My father who was in Poland and lived in a very small town, he was Jewish. And when the Holocaust survivor, he tried to started, he tried to escape. Uh, But uh, when Germany invaded Russia, he came back to Poland. And through a number of circumstances, one of which was, uh, they uh, put his father in jail and said that they were going to kill him unless they got someone who was young at the time. And he traded his life for his father, although it didn't, in the long run, didn't turn out well for his father, but was uh, put into a work camp in a place called Starchowitz and then was uh, shipped to Auschwitz and then finally to Dachau and he met my mother after the war and her whole family was, was murdered and they met in a displaced persons camp. Uh, if you've ever seen the, the uh, Steven Spielberg saga of uh, the liberation of the uh, camps, uh, the, my father was liberated at uh, Landsberg. And that's where they met and uh, they came, they were fortunate. There was an opening to come to the United States. They took it. My father worked as a laborer, uh, made mattresses in Peoria, Illinois, uh, and uh, was very happy to be in the United States, especially given the very difficult life and things started out for him. And I grew up in Peoria and things turned out well for me. Went to school, first person in my family to, to go to college and fortunate enough to get funding. And also uh, my wife, Sally, was a huge help And uh, throughout my academic career. Went to the University of Illinois, got a Ph.D. in economics and then went to the University of Kansas, spent time in D.C. at the Brookings Institution and at the Department of Labor and following that uh, got a position uh, at the University of Minnesota in 1987 and have been there ever since and have really enjoyed my time as an academic and being at the University of Minnesota.
0: Uh, that's fantastic and, and an amazing story and, and uh, I'm, I'm so sorry about um... In your parents' family. I mean, that, that's uh, re- really just uh, you know, one of the worst uh, tragedies in, in, uh, in all of human history. Um, I'm curious. Like, so, so you also served in the U.S. military uh, too. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and how you got, like, what got you interested in, in labor economics uh, to begin with, and, and occupational licensing, which you're very well known for. Um, and, and I, I think you know, you're you are the single you know, leading authority on. Uh, on, on occupational licensing. I'm, I'm curious, how did that all all happen?
1: Well, it happened when I was uh, at the Brookings Institution. I was farmed out to the Department of Labor, and uh, I was the new person at the Department of Labor, and my boss called me in and said, uh, we have this project, uh, some congressman wants to know about occupational licensing, you're the new kid on the block. Wow, I'm giving this to you. And I said, what had I done to, to him to get this terrible assignment? And I started getting into it, found out how interesting it was, saw that Milton Friedman had thought it was a very important issue and got into it. And uh, I, I was also, by the way, uh, doing a lot of work with a number of colleagues, uh, including Richard Freeman at Harvard who really piqued my interest in collective bargaining, labor relations. And I really saw a lot of very close parallels between what happens with labor unions and what they do and what happens with occupational licensing. So it was very much a parallel type of analysis to look both at collective bargaining unions and what they do with respect to in one case, raising wages uh, as occupational licensing does, and what it does for prices and consumers.
0: Well, I, I mean, it, it's so interesting. Milton Friedman wrote his doctoral dissertation on uh, this topic of occupational licensing. He wrote about this, you know, in the early 20th century. And you know, he famously, I think, later talked about you know, uh, doctors and, and how doctor licensing, physician licensing, I'm sure, made. Doctors almost as if they were sort of unionized in in a sense. But I'm curious, like, what is your understanding of how Milton Friedman's dissertation came about? And I know, like, I think famously the American Medical Association sort of tried to block its publication dissertation. He turned into a book, which turned into something that was co-authored with, I think, Simon Kuznets, who was his advisor at at Columbia. And then they they published that, I think, called Incomes from Independent Professional Practice. Um, But it's amazing because, you know, he was writing about it then when i think occupational licensing is a, a macro issue was a lot smaller as unionization has become less and less popular you know fewer unions if fewer, fewer union members across the us occupational licensing has you know quickly risen and become i think the, you know the largest sort of labor institution in the us you know about 25% i think or so of all workers uh, in the us have some sort of occupational license and meanwhile in this group from probably you know the maybe single digits or, or uh, around there in, in sort of 1950, whereas in like 1950, probably a third of the U.S. labor force was unionized, and that's dropped, to, I think, less than 10%. I'm curious, like, what do you think about this sort of macro trend? And you've been following it very closely, clo- following many professions. One, how did you get interested? Like, was it really Friedman that like, got you interested in occupational licensing? And, and what, like, what do you think are, are the big issues in, in occupational licensing? What, and, and what do you think has contributed to its rise over the past, say, 50, 70 years or so?
1: Well, I I hate to disappoint you, but what got me interested in occupational licensing was my boss assigning me this topic, Uh, but I really uh, found the work as a result of that. uh, It was a serendipitous event, but I found Milton Friedman's work. I found it very compelling and very interesting. I uh, was fortunate enough to be asked to write for an Oxford University Press book uh, dealing with... uh, Milton Friedman's contributions to economics and I was asked to write the chapter on occupational licensing. But as you correctly point out, licensing grew from about one in 20 workers to now one in four workers have attained. And that's the difference between coverage and attainment. It may be sort of in the weeds. Uh, uh, Coverage is engineers. So every engineer is covered by a law but uh, less than half, um, probably closer to one in four engineers, have actually gotten an occupational license, similarly with accountants. Uh, but uh, the numbers that are used is, yes, about one in four workers have attained an occupational license, but many more are covered by a license. And why has this happened? What, 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 why is the current period different than the period right after World War II? Part of it is really structural shifts. And after World War II, the dominant employer was in manufacturing. So you had General Motors, Ford, Chrysler. And they de- those workers didn't need an occupational license. The employer uh, chose who they wanted. But since that time, there's been a real structural shift to services. And that uh, if you're, if you're uh, a steel worker in 1950, and now you're a personal trainer. The personal trainer needs a license, where the steel worker didn't. And that's been a, a large part of the shift from manufacturing to services. In manufacturing, unions dominated. In services, uh, what has taken the substituted for uh, for unions has been occupational licensing.
0: And now, uh, occupations that are that require uh, licensing they typically skew towards the lower end of the income distributions. Is that sort of a, a good generalization to make? Uh,
1: well, it, for, certainly there are occupations both at the lower and higher end. So at the higher end, you think of the traditional ones that were licensed uh, after the Civil War. So doctors, dentists, in the 1920s, nurses. Uh, so those are the high-end occupations. More recently, following World War II, Uh, It has been the lower-income occupations, so there's development of new occupations like dental hygienists, like uh, physician's assistants, like nurse practitioners. All those are are evolving occupations, and when uh, the the sort of the, the way licensing develops, you get a number of people who are doing the same thing. They get together. They form an organization. They tax their members. They take those taxes and then lobby The legislature or the governor. In the US, licensing is really a state by state uh, role, so that uh, about 80% of all licenses are at the state level. And the organizations lobby the legislators and the governors. And if they're successful, which many have been in the post World War II period, they establish an occupational license for that occupation which says only people who have government positions and can use the police powers of the state can work for pay in that occupation.
0: So, so I think there, I mean, there is a sense in the policy sphere that, that there, there is an excessive amount of occupational licensing. And you hear about you know, certain professions, for example, that you know, may not even be necessarily the most high-skilled jobs out there, you know, nail technicians or braiders, for example, or, or hairdressers that d- don't necessarily need significant amounts of training, but are, are licensed and, and have you know state licenses that are aren't also you know don't necessarily aren't recognized in other states. So you know, if you're a you know, a nail tech or, or a hairdresser uh, in say Maryland, you may in, in your license there you may not be able to actually go work in say Virginia. You know, one state over like is that a, a big macro trend in occupational licensing i'm curious what your thoughts are on on that idea that you know occupational licensing has grown so far that it's actually one you know having negative consequences in the labor market in terms of labor mobility and people actually just trying to find work i'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on on that criticism of occupational licensing growing a bit too far
1: well, well certainly and and the groups that really need to, to focus uh, or try to, to get monopoly rights are uh, more recently have been these lower level occupations. So uh, in order to become a cosmetologist in most states, you need 1500 hours of uh, classwork and or practicum. That's more hours than it takes to get a law degree in most states. And what has happened uh, as occupations have grown in terms of their ability to restrict entry is, what, is the people you don't see. That is who would like to be a cosmetologist? Who would like to be a horse tooth filer? Who would like to be uh, a, uh, someone who uh, is an interior designer in some states? What does it take for these individuals to enter the occupation? And if there are barriers, It takes time in terms of going to a school that prepares you for the exam. It takes money. It takes time away from your current job, and this restricts especially low-income individuals from entering the occupation and, as you mentioned, the ability to move across state lines. More recently, there's been pushback, and there are about 10 to 15, as many as uh, depending on how you mention it, or you, depending on how you uh, cut it up, uh, there, there are many states that are reducing the barriers to move across state lines. So this has been a, a real push over the last several years, and it's been a push that's been supported by the last three presidents. The last three presidents have signed executive orders suggesting that, that occupational licensing has gone too far, and many states. Uh, the governors, starting with the state of Arizona, have said that if you move to the to Arizona and you have an occupational license in another state, we and and are a resident of Mar- of Arizona, you can immediately practice that occupation. So there's really been a push back to try to reduce some of these barriers, both to entering the occupation, which is which are substantial, and the ability to move across geographic borders in order to work in an occupation.
0: So I, I think there's like what uh, 13 states now maybe that have uh, embraced reciprocal, universal uh, reciprocal um, uh, position that uh, Arizona is taking where, you know, anyone who has uh, a license from out of state um, can use that license in, in states like Arizona or, or I think even Pennsylvania. So I, I think there's been, I think most of the states are, are somewhat um, Republican, but I think not all. I think it, it is a, a bipartisan issue. You know, states like, uh, you know, purple states like Pennsylvania have have jumped on this as well. I'm curious, like, I, I guess sort of to take the other side of this on, on licensing and the sort of rationale, I think the textbook rationale for licensing has always been that we, you know, that there, it's always been an information economics type argument where there is Asymmetric information, and in, in the labor market, you know, you don't necessarily know if you didn't have any licensing, who would be, you know, a good doctor or a bad doctor, and so you know, we need licensing to establish some sort of uh, minimum quality standard. And I'm I'm curious, like, if we were to sort of you know, go back to blank piece of paper, sort of uh, start from the beginning of you know, and imagine that there weren't any licensing regimes out there, like, how would you think about what occupations um, should be licensed and and you know what one shouldn't. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this sort of minimal quality standards type of, of information economics, information asymmetry thinking that usually gets uh, applied to uh, this issue of licensing.
1: Well, we started out with that way. Uh, right after the Civil War in the U.S., almost no one was licensed. There were very few occupations, including doctors. So the The issue for consumers is, was, uh, and which they promoted to to their legislatures, is you can't tell if someone is a good doctor versus a a snake oil salesman. So how do you, and especially for something like health, how do you determine whether someone has uh, the credentials or the knowledge to, uh, to provide these services? So the first group of occupations that were licensed after the Civil War up to the 1920s were occupations that were risky that is risky both for the person to enter and risky for the consumer so you saw the initial kinds of occupations that became licensed were the ones that had the risk that had a lot of human capital uh, associated dealing with people these were all the occupations that, in, that, that initially became licensed. In economics, it was called a public interest, that these were occupations where there was risk to the consumers and risk to the practitioners, and they were the first ones to become licensed. Over time, that has uh, sort of shifted to a public interest uh, application of licensing. So you've seen more recently Occupations are as I explained, got together and lobbied the legislature and the governor to say that uh, that we really need these occupations, and the public interest rationale, although it's trotted out, has been less important than the public choice view that these are that that there are more negatives relative to positives in uh, dealing with occupational licensing, and that has certainly been the case post uh, world war II. so it's so
0: interesting the history of medicine and something of interest you go back the late nineteenth uh, century in the 1800s you know, there were a lot of different you know physician groups that were sort of appearing and, and some you know were sort of considered quacks and you know, things like you know, bloodletting and all sorts of things were sort of going on but what was interesting is you know after things like the flexner report and and things like that you know th- there were Basically, only two groups of like schools of thought of physicians that were allowed to continue to exist: the allopaths and the osteopaths. And you know, to this day, you know, they're are the two major types of, of doctors and medical schools in the U.S. You know, you have MDs who are the allopaths and the DOs who are the osteopaths. And, and you know, they're they're, they're generally you know, the, the same. But there's you know, some people would tell you that there's uh, you know, there, there's some differences. I think you know, DOs are do somewhat more holistic sorts of uh, things, But it, it's interesting thinking about now, you know, just how a you know, hundred years later, you know, the, the types of, uh, of doctors and, and physicians that we have are, are still sort of influenced by you know, those key sort of occupational licensing decisions that were made a hundred years ago. It's so interesting. You know, now, you know, just flash forward to the COVID crisis. There was a lot of interesting things that were being done at that time when it came to, you know, temporary licensing. And, and I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts were on this. Obviously, you know, COVID was a huge crisis and, and very unexpected for a lot of people. And I remember during you know, certain parts of, of COVID, you know, during uh, the, you know, the earlier parts, when there were shortages of nurses and, and medical professionals and doctors, and in places like New York City, in, in New York State, you know, there was um, there were changes that were made that allowed, for example, I think medical students to, you know, for example, get uh, more involved in uh, and things that they would otherwise not be able to. There, there was also, I think, some sort of reciprocity that allowed out-of-state doctors to, to move around. I'm curious, like, has that, in your mind, sort of contributed to sort of a, a shift in some of the thinking around, you know, maybe some of these occupational licensing are, you know, um, and certainly the fact that, you know, you can't move across states uh, without having to, you know, do all sorts of, of more training as a, a licensed worker do you think that any of this has sort of shift the needle on, on people's thinking around licenses or I'm curious like who you think the um, the big enemies are of licensing reform in general
1: well I think uh, you very appropriately bring out the issue of what we called battlefield commissions so respiratory therapists as you alluded to or, uh, or other physicians, uh, who had not passed a licensing exam were allowed to were issued temporary licenses during COVID, and allowed them to practice. Individuals who were nurses who were retired and had let their licenses lapse were brought back into the fold to take care of very sick patients. So this was really an issue that that uh, the exogenous shock of COVID really. Uh, had a a significant effect on licensing Uh, and many governors uh, allowed individuals who were not fully licensed to work but they were temporary licenses so once uh covid started to wane these individuals were not uh, allowed to work uh, and their temporary licenses lapsed and they had to go through the full licensing procedure the only state that was an exception to that was Massachusetts that allowed a number of occupations uh, who had these battlefield commissions to continue practicing. Uh, What effect that has had on licensing, certainly since COVID, there's been a large relaxation of occupational licensing uh, criteria. Perhaps the biggest example is as we've discussed, the ability to move across state lines and the number of states that have allowed Uh, individuals to move to their state and they have accepted their license largely not fully there are all sorts of exceptions and the and the occupations really have have started to push back Uh, that is they said that individuals who come from a state that don't have the high standards that we do uh, that they will put uh, barriers uh, that is they must meet the 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 requirements of the state they're moving to or equivalent to those standards in order to work. So when, uh, yes, there's been a relaxation, but perhaps not as much as perhaps some people have wanted, and you are getting the pushback from the professions. I started out this conversation by talking about unions and perhaps the power that, that they might have in the legislature. They are weak compared to groups like Lawyers, doctors, dentists, barbers, cosmetologists. They have a lot more weight to throw around state legislatures uh, than almost any union you could think of.
0: Well, it's amazing. Uh, it's so interesting to think about just how powerful some of these professions are, are in D.C. And, and you know, of course, a lot of them you know, have, have their own you know, offices and buildings uh, there uh, and are very active on Capitol Hill. I know, Morris, you know, you're probably the most sought after person that comes to occupational licensing policy across states and, and in, in, uh, in Washington, D.C. I know you're in very, very high demand from policymakers. I also, you know, you're an academic, uh, not only by training, but you know, that's um, being a professor is, you know, is your primary appointment. I'm, I'm curious about your thinking about where occupational licensing fits into labor economics in, in academia. I think, you know, you're maybe, you know, 30 years ago one of the few people in in academic economics, in uh, labor economics, really uh, focused on occupational licensing. And and since then, I think, um, thanks to a lot of your initial work, a lot of other labor economists have joined in. You know, I think people, um, economists like Alan Kruger, uh, I I think, um, you know, Peter Blair, I think uh, Evan Soltis and others. Are you excited to see all uh, these young scholars um, jumping into occupational licensing. I'm, I'm curious of what your thoughts are on how occupational licensing is, is blossoming. Like in your mind, you know, should more scholars be you know, studying occupational licensing? And, and in your mind, like, what are the areas that you think need more work to be done um, from an academic perspective on this issue?
1: Well, I, I'm thank you for the the kind uh, remarks. Uh, I think, as as Larry Summers would say, uh, my uh, my uh, father would have been very proud, and my mother would have actually believed it. Uh, so, thank you for the kind remarks. However, uh, I, I'm I'm really glad that there are a number of uh, scholars who have taken up uh, at looking and examining the role of occupational licensing both in terms of how it got started, how it evolved, uh, and what its effects are. I think when when you talk about licensing, it's also, I look at the numbers, I look at the models, and that's sort of my job as an academic. Uh, But it's also important to remember that these are people who are trying to get into, trying to find legitimate work, trying to become a barber, trying to become a cosmetologist, trying to become a plumber, an electrician. Uh, and it's how hard some of these barriers are in terms of trying to get into these occupations that will move them from the 10th percentile to the 30th or 40th percentile, and that these barriers really serve to limit their ability to make a, an honest living. So I think that's what uh, I, that sort of motivates me, and I think just uh, looking at the barriers and also just looking what what do we buy? The Licensing, as Tom Sowell always, has always mentioned, that there are trade-offs, that by putting these barriers, yes, people who are in the occupations make more money, but what happens to the people who couldn't get into the occupations? What are they doing? So a lot of the work really ought to look at what happens to people who can't get into, get on the boat, get on the lifeboat with other people swimming around, I think that, that, that that's an important issue to think about. Also internationally, uh, there's there's been much less work on occupational licensing in the European Union, in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, in Southeast Asia, in China, in South America. There's very little that is known about the role of occupational licensing in these in these nations. So I think it's really important For scholars, especially outside the U.S., to see if what happens in the U.S., that is, occupational licensing raises wages, it increases hours of work, and it restricts entry. And as a result, uh, a lot of people who would like to work in certain occupations just can't do it.
0: Well, it's amazing. It's so exciting uh, hearing about all uh, these avenues for future research for economists to do And, uh, you know, know, hopefully some will come along and pursue, if not yourself Morris, because I feel like you're so prolific in all your occupational licensing work that you're doing, continuing to do. Um, It's so exciting. And and hopefully, you know, we'll have more answers on on these issues soon. And it'll be interesting to see how occupational licensing policy evolves across states in the decades to come and and whether or not maybe there will be some reversal in in, um, just how tight occupational licensing regulation has become. It's a real honor to talk to you, Morris. Um, You've been a real trailblazer in labor economics, in um, really starting this field of studying occupational licensing and its labor market consequences. I want
1: to thank you so much, Morris, for joining us today on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to your listeners. Thank you so much, Morris. Today,
0: our guest was Morris Kleiner. Who is the AFL-CIO Chair in Labor Policy at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century Podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us.